Well, praise the Lord. Amen. 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 Such a joy to worship with you all this morning. Such a uh, profound joy to be with all of you and, and open up the holy and inspired scriptures. I'd pray that you do that now uh, to the book of Psalms. Psalm 59. Psalm 59, and if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 59. This is God's Word. For the choir director, Al Tashesh of David, a mictum, when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to put him to death. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on high, away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from workers of iniquity and save, save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have lain in wait for my soul. Fierce men launch an attack against me, not for my transgression nor for my sin, O Yahweh, for no guilt of mine they run and set themselves against me. Arise yourself to meet me and see. You, O Yahweh, God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. Selah. They return at evening, they howl like a dog and go around the city. Behold, they pour forth speech with their mouth, swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? But you, O Yahweh, laugh at them. You mock all the nations. Because of his strength, I will watch for you, for God is my stronghold. My God in his loving kindness will approach me. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. Do not slay them, or my people will forget. Make them wander about by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. On account of their sin, on account of the sin of their mouth and the word of their lips, let them ever even be caught up in their pride, and on account of their curses and lies which they utter. Destroy them in wrath. Destroy them that they may be no more. That men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Selah. They return at evening. They howl like a dog. Go around the city. They wander about for food. Growl if they are not satisfied. But as for me, I shall sing of your strength and I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, 
As I said, it's uh, good to be with you all this morning to open up the divinely inspired scriptures together. I want to start our time this morning with a commendation, namely to all of you uh, who have stuck with us in this summer in the Psalms. Even though there have been many challenging texts and themes, think about what we've considered since June. We started with Psalm 51 and heard of the biblical doctrines of the spiritual bankruptcy of man, the total depravity of man, the utter sinfulness of man, and man's subsequent need to repent of their sin, turn from their sin, and to turn to their creator for restoration and reconciliation. All things which are minimized or passed over or altogether rejected in many circles of American evangelicalism. We then looked at Psalms 52 through 57, which all brought about even more of life's challenges, including persecution, including betrayal, slander, the inner workings of the reprobate mind, as we heard the fool say in his heart, there is no God. We even heard about being mere steps away from death, all compounded by the constant, ever-present threat of anxiety and depression, which have plagued the lives of countless men and women throughout human history. Yes, even the lives of the most faithful men and women of God. This has been quite the summer. And yet, here you all are. Ready. Willing. Perhaps even longing for the next word from the Lord. Last week, Chris took us through what is known as an imprecatory psalm. A psalm which literally calls for the misfortune of others for divine pain and torment to be inflicted upon others, a curse being pronounced upon those who would be considered enemies of God. Again, a very challenging and very difficult teaching, and one, again, many people simply choose to minimize or pass over or deny altogether. However, when you go book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, it simply cannot be ignored. And so it wasn't ignored. And yet, here you all are again, opening your Bibles to Psalm 59. And I'm glad you're here. I'm thankful that you're here. But I must warn you, today's psalm is not going to be any easier to swallow. Because as you heard in the reading of the text, this is yet another imprecatory psalm. And one that deals directly with the most disturbing and terrifying reality in all of creation. And that is the wrath of God. The wrath of God. The wrath of the Lord God Almighty. The wrath, the fury, the vengeance of the all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing God of the heavens and the earth. Wrath which David calls for in Psalm 59. As he calls for this wrath to be poured out on a certain group of people. Verse 13. A true consideration of wrath, the wrath of God, is never easy to hear. This will not be easy to hear today. It won't be easy to preach. In fact, I told the elders a few weeks ago, anytime I'm preparing to preach texts like this with so weighty a topic, I find myself in this weird state of gloom, something between soberness and solemnness, perhaps even borderline despondency. I can think of several occasions where this has been the case. Anytime I preach on hell 
or the lake of fire, the great white throne, the eternal torments that await unbelieving, unregenerate men and women. Anytime I preach on the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ or his crucifixion or the prophecies that detail the soul agony of Christ leading up to his death, I have this weightiness that accompanies me. And I can't shake it. I have these bizarre, uh, terrifying dreams even. I can feel this tremendous burden of what I can only assume is spiritual warfare, and I say that as perhaps the least mystical person in this room. But i got to tell you, this week has been uh, no different. No different. I've considered this text. I've studied this text. I've dived deep into the wrath of God because of this text, and so I bring this message to you with a sober and somewhat heavy heart. Now, I know some guys really delight in stuff like this, like this is their wheelhouse, this is their shtick, their gig, a constant spewing of hellfire, wrath, and soul destruction, where it almost seems like they derive pleasure from the topic. But I think there might be uh, something wrong with folks like that. Because a a true understanding, even a, a small understanding of the wrath of an infinitely holy God and what it means for woefully unholy and depraved men and women ought to cause us to tremble in utter terror. What the wrath of God means, both on a temporal level and infinitely more so on an eternal level, ought to shake us to our very core. It ought to cause us to be broken, distraught, especially for the everlasting souls of unbelieving loved ones who will soon feel its full weight. Maybe even some of you in here this morning. It ought to cause us to say with Spurgeon, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. Even just a small meditation upon the wrath of God, as we'll do together this morning, even a small sampling of the reality of the doctrine of God's wrath ought to cause our hearts to be both stunned and sobered, especially, especially when we see one of God's chosen people calling for it to come upon others. This is no small thing here. Destroy them in wrath. David prays, destroy them in wrath. He's calling for the wrath of God. This is no joke. This is no game. This is no trivial matter. This is no Hollywood film set. This is not hyperbole or exaggeration for poetic effect here. This is as real as it gets. It's more real than anything in our lives. David is calling for the most terrifying realities in all of existence to be poured out on a group of men here, which is shocking to say the least. But why? Why would he call for this? Why would he call for such destruction? Why would he imprecate or invoke such terrors and curses upon his fellow man? Well, let's dive in to find out. First of all, you'll notice in your outlines that there are two main divisions in this psalm. Verses 1 through 10, we see David's plea for deliverance. Verses 11 through 17, we see David's plea for destruction. That's where we'll consider the wrath of the Lord God Almighty. First, if you can look at the superscription for a moment or the text above the text, you'll see again that this is a psalm of David for the choir director when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to put him to death. This references the time even before Gath and the cave of Dullam. We've spent some time in the summer when King David sent 
excuse me, King Saul sent David out on a, a death mission to capture 100 Philistine foreskins as a bride price for his daughter Michael's hand. Okay, M-I-C-H-A-L, Michael. When, as we read in 1 Samuel 19, Saul then sent messengers to David's house to keep watch over him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not make an escape for your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michael let David down through a window. He went out, fled, and escaped. Then Michael took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, but she said, he's sick. So Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me on his bed, that I may put him to death. The messengers came, and behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of goat's hair at its head. So Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Michael said to Saul, He said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? This psalm speaks of that time. This psalm speaks of these same messengers leading David to desperately cry out in verse 1, deliver me from my enemies, O God. Set me securely on high, away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from workers of iniquity and save me from men of bloodshed. Right from the get-go, David identifies these men as enemies, adversaries, opponents, even though they were technically all on the same team. They were all on the same side. They were part of the army of Israel under the rule of the same king, Saul, ultimately God. But unlike David, these guys had become Saul's hitmen his personal gang of assassins unleashed upon David, whom he falsely portrayed as being somewhat of a domestic terrorist. These guys were hell-bent on pursuing and then murdering David, and all as we've seen based on false pretenses, baseless lies that David was somehow a threat to the nation. He, He wasn't a threat to the nation at all. In fact, he was a mighty warrior. In fact, these same men who were, who were sent to kill him were probably shouting in exaltation as he, he slew the mighty Goliath that they were all too petrified to face. Remember that? But now, far from participating in David's exaltation, they are now actively seeking his termination or extermination. You know, I think sometimes we miss the urgency of these psalms. Like we read them, but we don't really grasp the magnitude of what they're saying, how David's life was literally on the line here. Uh, how how if, if not for God's providence through Michael's putting an idol in, the place of, in that bed in place of David, he would, have, he would have been brutally murdered here. Have you ever seen anybody get murdered? Maybe you have. Have you ever seen anyone get run through with a sword or a spear? I haven't. Yet this was a very real danger that David faced and fled from, and not just for a season, but for many years. Uh, he, he fled, yes, but he also prayed. He also cried out, deliver me, rescue me, O God, save me. That's what he says, save me. Save me from men of bloodshed, verse 2. These guys are going to kill me, save me. Set me securely on high. Snatch me up to safety. Put me up in a tree or a mountain, anything to spare me from the hands of my enemies. 
Verse 3, for behold, they have lain wait for my soul. For my soul, not just my body. They want my blood and they want my soul. That's the level of animosity these guys had for David. Fierce men launch an, launch an attack against me. Not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Yahweh. For no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. Arise yourself, arouse yourself to meet me and see, he says. Now, a couple of quick notes here. David says, they pursue me without cause. I've done nothing wrong. No sin. Now, is he saying he never sins? Of course not. Far from it. He's not saying he's altogether innocent without sin in his life. He's saying he's innocent in this case, based on these circumstances, based on these charges that these men are bringing against him. I am innocent of what these men are accusing me of. He even prays, God, arouse yourself. Come come over here. Look at this. It's worth noting, as Alan Ross said, the prayer appeals to for God to act immediately. In fear and boldness, the psalmist calls for God to wake up. This is a figurative expression equating God's apparent inactivity to being asleep. Of course, he does not sleep, but the call is for God to rouse himself, to get involved now. The purpose of the appeal, awake, is expressed as to meet me, meaning come to his aid in his distress. Same thing in verse 5. You O Yahweh, God of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. The nations? That's interesting. When did the nations come into play here? I I thought we were talking about a group of guys sent by Saul to kill David. What do the nations have to do with this? Well, because it's a miktam or an instructive psalm for worship in the sanctuary, it may very well have been adapted to be used as a national lament. In other words, it's imprecatory both on an individual level, David's asking for deliverance from his persecutors and those who hated him, and on a national level, as God's people, the Jews, were asking for deliverance from, the, 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 from their persecutors and those who hated them. Okay? Individual and national. It's important to note that this term for nations here is synonymous with all unbelieving men and women, typically those from the areas surrounding Israel. This is a cry for the godly man or woman seeking deliverance from the ungodly, pagan, wicked men of the earth who hate them on on account of their allegiance with Yahweh. That's what this means. But specifically David, who says at the end of verse 5, do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. That's a bold statement in itself. Notice that wording there. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. Selah. Pause and meditate. David has said repeatedly throughout the Psalms, you are a gracious God, abounding in mercy, abounding in grace, abounding in patience. You extend grace to all men by not killing them dead the very moment they sin against you. You are slow to anger, O Lord. You show common grace and love to all men in this way. As Jesus said, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the wicked and the righteous, or the righteous and the unrighteous, even those who despise God in this world, even today as we sit here. 
Even those who hate God in this world today get to experience the good things in life due to his common graces, right? It's common grace. But here, David is saying, I'm asking you to stop showing them such grace. If I had my way, these men wouldn't even experience another hint of your grace. That's a bold statement indeed. It's shocking. It's shocking to think. Verse 6, they return at evening. They howl like a dog. They go around the city. Behold, they pour forth speech with their mouth. Swords are in their lips. For they say, who hears? Who hears? In other words, he says, these guys are nothing but dogs. They're just dogs. Not the cute, fluffy kind we all have at our houses, sitting on our couches right now and eating from our hands. These are no good, low-down, flea-bitten, disease-ridden scavengers. These men are like rabid dogs, frothing at the mouth. These are dogs on the attack, dogs on the prowl, bloodthirsty mutts, who David says has, have no fear of Yahweh. That's what he means in verse 7. For they say, who hears? In other words, nobody of any real significance sees what we're doing here. No accountability is coming. In fact, there's no authority outside of King Saul. Therefore, we get to satiate our lust for blood while defaming and tarnishing this guy's character in the process without any repercussions because nobody hears. Nobody's going to judge us for the slanderous lies we spew to then justify our killing him, which is another way of saying There is no God. These are godless dogs. But David knows better, doesn't he? So he says in verse 8, But you, O Yahweh, laugh at them. You mock all the nations. That sounds familiar. It's because it's the very same language used in Psalm 2, where David told us how... Yahweh views the greatest threats and the greatest conflicts on this earth, namely, as nothing more than a humorous nuisance, like like a sweat bee flying in his face on a hot summer afternoon. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Oh, the people are so tough. Well, with their rocks and their clubs and their swords and spears, with their guns and their missiles and their nuclear bombs. Oh, I'm so nervous. Oh, how the Lord must tremble at the might of all powerful man. Not so. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them, holds them in derision. This is... This is the infinite, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-sovereign God of all creation we're talking about here. He's not bothered by pathetic demonstrations of temporal power from his finite creatures upon the globe that he spoke into existence and upholds with the word of his power. He could make it all disappear like that. Just like that. And if it weren't for the covenant promises he made concerning the redemption of his people, he probably would. In fact, one day he will make it disappear like that. As it all burns up, there's nothing left but a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. Oh, 
and a place called the Lake of Fire, which is reserved for those who mocked him and lived their lives by the credo, who hears? Which one are you? What will be the eternal destination of your everlasting soul? But you, O Yahweh, laugh at them. You mock all the nations. Because of his strength, I will watch for you. For God is my stronghold. In other words, they may have a little bit of power and authority for a little bit of time, but I'm not resting in the strength of man here. I will flee to my mighty fortress. Can you say the same? Can you say the same? Verse 10, my God in his loving kindness will approach me. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. That's David saying, he, Yahweh, not me, he must and he will win the battle. Pretty intense, right? Pretty intense stuff. Well, we're just getting started. Look now as we go from the plea for deliverance to the plea for destruction and wrath. Interestingly, in verse 11, we see David saying, in essence, win the battle, yes, but don't go all the way yet. Uh, Let this judgment linger for a bit, almost like a trickling of judgment. Look at this. Do not slay them or my people will forget. Make them wander about by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield, on account of the sin of their mouth and the word of their lips. Let them even be caught in their pride and on account of the curses and lies which they utter. Again, swift justice would be sweet justice. I know we all long for swift justice from time to time. Corrupt leaders, global leaders who lust after power to retain that power, oppressing entire nations of people while they live out their corrupted lives, seemingly above the law. All the while, in the back of your head, you're thinking, don't we still have snipers in this country? What are those guys doing right now? Pedophiles, sex traffickers, domestic abusers, rapists, chronic liars, crooks, Sometimes we long for the days of swift justice, public displays of capital punishment. It makes you wonder if things would be more civil around here. Oh yeah, we long for justice. As does David, but again, he says, let them linger in their folly for a little bit, okay? That's pretty good stuff, actually. We'll be in glory soon. They'll be in hell. Let them languish with their, in their miserable lives for a little bit longer. Let them, let them even be caught up in their pride and on account of their curses and lies which they utter. Verse 12. Cause them to stumble about to make fools of themselves first. Let the judgment come slowly to these people and for a purpose. What purpose? that my people will remember. Or as David says, that my people will not forget. Forget what? Answer. The things these dogs hate most. 
that you are the sovereign God of all creation. Now, how is this demonstrated? Well, first, by that same long-suffering. You see, if God struck down every sinner on the earth the moment they sinned, there'd be nobody left on the earth. In fact, we'd all be doomed right from the very start because we were all conceived and then born in sin. We were born judged already, as Jesus said. But the reality that the sovereign God suffers long and is patient with sinners does two things. Number one, it demonstrates uh, his sovereign will to keep them alive, to store up wrath and incur judgment upon themselves, not only for all of eternity, but also in this life, in the here and now which is exactly what David calls for in verse 11. Don't kill him yet. Let him suffer for a while. Let's do this here. Let them really feel the consequences of their action as an example to the people that transgressing against the Lord does not pay. That their sin will find them out. Numbers 32, 23. That the lie of sin never satisfies. Let them be caught up in their pride. I don't want any of my people to forget where the pride of life ultimately leads. Second reason God delays his wrath, and I'm not completely sure that David had this in mind considering verse 13, but it's one I have to mention. That part of the long-suffering of God is that he's actively calling those who belong to him out of their wickedness, something even the self-proclaimed chief of sinners would give a hearty amen to. Timothy, listen up now. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, uh, blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Paul would say, listen, I was just as bad if not worse, as these dogs that were after David in Psalm 59. In fact, I was a part of that pack. I could have been the leader of the pack. I took counsel together with the other religious dogs against the Lord and his anointed. I, in, I was imprisoning Christians. I was beating Christians. I was casting my vote for the murder of Christians. I was a bad man. But God was gracious. God didn't kill me the moment I held the coats of the bloodthirsty mob as they stoned Stephen. God was long-suffering. I was spared. I was spared for a purpose. That's what he's writing to Timothy. I was spared for a purpose to preach the gospel. Now, there's a big part of me that would like to think that David has something like that in mind. But then verse 13 comes, where he says, actually, you know what? Destroy them. Destroy them in wrath. Destroy them that they may be no more. And again, for a purpose. For a purpose. What purpose? That men may know that God rules in Jacob. But not just Jacob, not just Israel, but to the ends of the earth. Selah. Pause and meditate. that they may know that the God of Israel reigns, and he reigns supreme. And then, as he draws this psalm to a close, he gives another short description of the evildoers, who he again likens to a pack of wild dogs, which only come out at nighttime. Verse 14, they return at evening. They howl like a dog. They go around the city. 
They wander about for food and growl if they are not satisfied. They want my blood. They lie in wait for my soul. Destroy them. He says, destroy these dogs in your wrath. Okay. So, what is wrath? Well, it's been defined as the emotional response to perceived wrong and injustice. Both humans and God express wrath, but there's a huge difference. One commentary said, when used of God, wrath refers to his absolute opposition to sin and evil. When used of humans, however, wrath is one of those evils that is to be avoided. Another quote, the wrath or anger of God is mentioned three times more often than human wrath. There are some 20 different Hebrew words used approximately 580 times that refer to God's wrath in the Old Testament alone. 580 times. One word means nose or face. They use it to communicate the idea of wheezing or snorting in anger. Excuse me. Uh, Another is often translated fury or heat, a burning wrath, flaring nostrils, but of the Lord God the Almighty. Now, very important. The wrath of God is not only an Old Testament doctrine. It is frequently used in the New Testament as well, mostly from the lips of Jesus himself, describing divine indignation and scorn over sin. One writer said, quote, The doctrine of the wrath of God is unpopular in much modern theological discourse. Some deny that there is ever anger with God. Others think of God's wrath as, imperson- as an impersonal moral cause and effect process that results in unpleasant consequences for evil acts. Still, others view God's wrath as his anger against sin, but not the sinner. God's wrath is real, severe, and personal. The idea that God is not angry with the sinners belongs neither to the Old Testament nor to the New Testament. God is a personal moral being who is unalterably opposed to evil and takes personal actions against it. Wrath is the punitive righteousness of God by which he maintains his moral order, which demands justice and retribution for injustice. I couldn't have said it better myself. And it's that retribution that David is calling for here in verse 13. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. They lie in wait for my soul. They set themselves against me. Awake! Arouse yourself and see. They have no fear of your holy name in their hearts. For they say, who hears? Destroy them, O Lord. Destroy them in wrath. Actually, this is better translated, consume them in wrath. Consume them until they are no more. Well, let me just ask you then, before we go on. What's your reaction to this? What's your response to this? What's your response to the fact that here we are this morning preaching about, hearing about, worshiping, and serving a vengeful God, a punitive, vengeful, 
wrathful God, a, a God who punishes sin. And, and not only sin, as so many falsely believe to be the case, but rather the sinners who commit the sin. What's your response to your creator being so adamantly against sin that he's willing to not only allow, but to even cause and inflict so much torment upon transgressors, both in this life and the, le- and the next? What's your initial reaction to this? Be honest with yourself. Here's why I ask. Have you ever heard, the, the, or, or heard somebody read the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Have you heard that? It's a classic. If you've never heard it or read it, you should do it today when you go home. Pull it up on your phone right now. It wouldn't offend me. <laughs> it was a sermon delivered by Jonathan Edwards in July of 1741. See, I didn't say 1941 this time. It's a great sermon. A remarkable exposition of Deuteronomy 32:35. Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will stumble, for the day of their disaster is near. And it was a sermon that was full of blunt, direct warnings that there is a real place called hell, and it's only the sheer mercy of God that keeps people from slipping into it. It's the most well-known sermon from the Great Awakening, and it was a sermon that Edward started to preach, but he never finished it. Okay? Why not? Because, as one eyewitness said, before the sermon was done, there was a great moaning and crying out throughout the whole house. What shall I do to be saved? Oh, I am going to hell. What shall I do for Christ? Somebody said people were grasping onto the front of the chairs so they, they didn't slip headlong into torment. Edwards asked for silence, but the tumult increased until Edwards had to stop preaching. Instead, the pastors, plural, went down among the people and prayed with them in groups. The sermon didn't even finish. Many came to a saving knowledge of Christ that day. And I only bring that up this morning because Edwards had preached that same sermon at least, two, uh, at least one other time, maybe even twice, though including one to his own congregation who are said to be indifferent, unmoved by the words. So, so I'm just asking, and I'm asking you to ask yourself, what's your response to the reality of this place called hell and God sending people there for all of eternity with no chance of ever escaping? What's your response to that? What's your response to the reality of God's wrath and God's judgment? What's your reaction to David's then praying that God would consume these men in his wrath? Which he has done countless to countless others that came before them. Is it fear? Are you afraid? That would be the most appropriate response, I think. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That's a very rational response if you ask me. Why can't we be scared out of hell? Who made that rule that we ought not to scare people into heaven? Who says we can't do that? You should be scared. We should be scared, very scared. We ought to have a a rational, even healthy fear of an angry God. 
the writer of Hebrews even said, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's terrifying. I think fear is a great response, actually. We should have a a reverential awe and terror at a God who demands perfect justice and perfect righteousness and, and who punishes those who don't meet those requirements. We ought to fear because the truth is we all know there's not a one of us in this place who has lived up to those standards. Not one of you. And not me either. Far from it. Therefore, we deserve everything we got coming to us. We, we should fear. But then we should take that rational fear for what it is. A gift from God. Much better to fear the coming judgment, repent of your sin, and come to God by grace alone, through faith alone, to, than to have the mindset of who hears or there is no God. That would be a curse in itself, Right? Maybe fear is your initial response, or maybe your response is to be aggravated. Oh, I can't wait till this is over. I've got a lunch. I've got things, a football game is on. Maybe you're aggravated. Maybe you're upset by it, but you still want to identify as a Christian. So maybe the way you process this truth is to soften it like so many others in the church do, perhaps, as we said before, through the minimization or tempering of this horrendous doctrine, maybe saying, well, that's the God of the Old Testament, or that's the God of Israel, or that's the God of the time of Moses and the law, but doing so would imply that somehow God changes, that, that he changed in between the, uh, Malachi and Christ, those 400 years, he's a different God. He's a different God now. Then you have to make all kinds of excuses and all kinds of excuses for and, and seek to pass over all the New Testament references to God's wrath here, like where Paul encourages believers to never take their own revenge in Romans 12. Don't call on the snipers, Paul says. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's future, by the way. I will repay. Or in Ephesians 5, where he warns other believers to let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes, present tense, upon the sons of disobedience. Or Colossians 3. Therefore, Consider consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God not came upon, past tense, but is coming upon, both present and future tense, the sons of disobedience. Well, you'd have to do... All kinds of interpretive gymnastics to explain all these references. And I've seen it done. Some pretty impressive flexibility out there. Same with John the Baptist, even Jesus Christ himself, who talked more about the Father's righteous judgment and wrath and eternal hell than anyone else in all of Scripture. Either Old or New Testaments, when their message was, the kingdom is at hand, repent, flee from the Wrath, when? Back in Moses' time? Back in Psalm 59? Time of Malachi? No. 
to come. Flee from the wrath to come. He talked about the fiery hell, Matthew chapter 5. A place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew chapters 8, 13, 22, 24, 25. A fiery furnace, a place of outer darkness, eternal torment, Matthew 8, 25, 22. He explicitly commanded his disciples to not fear other men who can only kill the body, but to fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell forever, Matthew chapter 10. Jesus said that. Jesus said that. These are eternal souls of the people that you know and you love being destroyed in hell forever. No second chance. That's just one gospel. That was all just Matthew. Any true Berean, any true sincere student of the Bible cannot deny the reality of the coming judgment and wrath of God. Even that wrath that Jesus said in John chapter 3 that all believers are under even now. Listen to this. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Abides, stays, remains. Meaning, all unbelievers are not only facing future eternal wrath, retribution, fury, rage at the hands of an angry God, but they are currently, even now, under God's wrath. How, you ask? Well, by having to live out their lives on this earth without knowing and loving the one who allowed them to be here in the first place. That's a hell in itself. It's the ultimate tragedy. Romans chapter 1. You know it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's judgment in the here and now. Godless lives. Miserable. Miserable. But I'm here to tell you, the future judgment, the eternal judgment, is infinitely more horrendous and terrifying per the judge, Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ will be the savior of some and the sentencer of some. So is that your response to the reality of God's wrath, to minimize it or downplay it? It sure wasn't his response. Or maybe you're among those who hold the most common response, which is to just flat out deny it. To either deny God's existence or deny his true character, which is the same thing. Unfortunately, there are billions of people living on this earth today who fit into this category. I would tell you, don't be one of them. Don't be one of them. We cannot deny that this is the reality of God. The, the, the reality of the character of God, okay? But we also mustn't think of God as we do other people or, or hold the God of the Bible, the God of the heavens and the earth to the same standards as we do other men. It would be, be a tragedy in itself. 
we have to, again, understand that divine wrath and human wrath are, are two totally different things here. Human wrath is evil. Divine wrath is holy. Human rage is flawed and corrupted, and we have our own motivations. Div- divine rage, on the other hand, it's perfect. It's, it's pure. It's always purpose- purposeful. It's always just. It's always warranted. It's always right. But that doesn't make it any easier to swallow, does it? Nobody is saying this is an easy doctrine here, okay? It's a terrifying doctrine. People get all up in arms about Calvinism and Arminianism and gender roles in the church and eschatological differences, cessationism and charismatic chaos. You want to be offended at something, let it be the doctrine of God's wrath. Heard that said. If you want to be offended, be, be offended at the reality of an eternal hell. But no matter how much it offends us, it doesn't give us the right to remove it from our vernacular or downplay the reality of it being part of God's perfect nature. Divine justice and divine wrath are a part of his perfections. It's a part of who he is. And he's the one who said so about himself in his word too many times to list. Go read the book of Nahum sometime. This guy went back to Nineveh after... Uh, a, genera- a generation or two after they repented at Jonah's preaching, he went back. The city had turned away from God. This whole book then is a pronouncement of divine judgment upon them for once again turning from the Lord here. It says, a jealous and avenging God is Yahweh. This is God speaking about himself through his prophet. Tell these people this. A jealous and avenging God is Yahweh. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh is avenging against his adversaries. He keeps his anger for his enemies. That's God speaking about God. That should be your source of truth, by the way. I want to be very loving when I say this, but ultimately it doesn't matter what other people outside of the divinely inspired writers say about God. Truly, It doesn't matter what other people tell you about God. Certainly not Rob Bell or Andy Stanley or Stephen Furtick and their ilk. Don't base the destiny of your everlasting soul upon upon who others say God is. Not even reputable theologians and preachers. They're just supplemental here. Let God tell you who God is in his word not just from the mouth of some preacher. He tells you who he is, but you've got to open the book. Is God slow to anger? Is, is God love? That's the big thing. God is love. Is God love? Yes, absolutely, because he says so himself in his word. But is God also a jealous and avenging God? Yes, he says so himself right there in Nahum 1. Is God slow to anger? Yes, we see this repeatedly. Paul, Peter, Timothy, Nahum all said the same thing. Moses said the same thing. Nahum said, Yahweh is slow to anger, great in power, but with the very next breath, and Yahweh will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He must. He must punish sin and sinners to maintain his perfectly just nature. Psalm 7, God is a righteous judge. A God who has indignation every day. If man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow 
and prepared it. We can't just rip those pages out and, and start having church. It doesn't work that way. We can't say, oh, this was the old God. He's much softer now. Well, God never changes. How could you trust a God that changes all the time? <laughs> He's the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. My brothers and sisters, we cannot and we must not minimize, alter, or out, outright deny the character of God. To do so has and will only lead to some devastatingly tragic consequences. Not to mention that a minimization of God's wrath and judgment to come only really minimizes that which makes his amazing grace so amazing, right? You can't have the good news without the bad, do- bad news, right? You see, this is why we sing. Who else comes together and sings like this? This is, this is why we come together and we pray to our God, we listen to his word, we partake in the Lord's Supper, we worship him for saving us from the wrath that we so rightly deserved. We praise him for maintaining his just and holy nature by inflicting the the punishment upon his one and only son that was meant for us. That, That on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. As The Lord Jesus Christ took the place of and bore the penalty of sin for all who would believe in his gospel and call upon his name alone for salvation. That's why we worship him. That's why we love him, because he first loved us and gave his one and only son to redeem and reconcile believing sinners to himself. Are you one of those? Are you one of those who can seem... Sing with Nahum even, even in the midst of that terrifying prophecy that Yahweh is good, a strong defense in the day of distress, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Can you cry out with Paul and the earliest believers, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. You know every time you're saying that, you're calling for the judgment of God to come upon this earth, right? Yet, yet, true believers do so loudly and proudly because we know we've been spared from it. As we wait for his son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Are you a part of the us as you sit in that chair this morning? Are you a part of the us? Now's the time to be sure. Now's the time to be absolutely certain. The salvation of your everlasting soul from God's wrath and to God's glory is available to you today through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You can be saved today. You can sing the same praises with all the saints both old and new, all the redeemed men and women of God, including David, who closes this very difficult psalm in verse 16 with direct direct exultation to his mighty fortress. But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning, for you have been my stronghold, refuge in the day of my distress. In the midst of some of the most panicked and urgent and even downright terrifying times in his life, David had the sweet assurance that he could 
count on God for everything, that God would right all the wrongs, that God would shelter him and preserve him, if not in this life, then certainly in the life to come. That was his hope. That was his confidence. His stronghold, his mighty fortress was the perfect nature of the attributes of God, all of them, not just the ones he liked best. I would ask again this morning, can the same be said of you? Can the same be said of you? Do you find your security, safety, refuge, even rest in the perfect nature of God? I hope that you do. I hope that you do. If you have any questions at all about what this looks like, please come and talk to me after the service or talk to one of the other elders. For now, let those who truly believe sing praises to his holy name for what's been done for us through Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray as Noel and the music team comes up to lead us in musical worship. Our Heavenly Father, we give you all praise, all honor, all glory for what's been done for us through Christ. And we give you all praise, all honor, and all glory for who you've revealed yourself to be in your word. Thank you for the tremendous privilege of being able to come together this morning, open up your word, and be instructed by it, to learn about your perfect nature and all of your attributes which culminate in your glory. We just, we're so, so grateful to be your children. Thank you for delivering us from the torments of hell. Thank you for delivering us from the wrath to come. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.